This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I'll suck you up and I'll spit you out and I'll play with your babies till you scream and shout, oh yeah, oh yeah, till you scream and shout, oh yeah, oh yeah. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. On today's show, we have a full house. Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra, Shireen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress, Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history in women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Penn State University, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. As always, thank you to our patrons who supported this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign make burn it all down possible we are forever and always grateful if you would like to become a patron it's easy go to patreon.com slash burn it all down you can pledge as little as one dollar per month but if you donate a little bit more you can access exclusives like an extra patreon only segment or monthly newsletters on today's show we're going to talk about homophobia and sport in the wake of rennie portland's death and jaylene hinkle nearly making the u.s women's soccer team roster for the tournament of nations Then we'll discuss Mezut Ozil, who retired from the German national team last week, stating that he was doing so because of the racism he has faced, asking, quote, I was born and educated in Germany, so why don't people accept that I am German? And Brenda interviews Caitlin Best, a writer and journalist who often covers soccer. They talk about this kick-ass NWSL season despite the tough conditions that persist. And, of course, we will cap it all off by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what is good in our world. First, though, this weekend was the WNBA All-Star Game, and we Woo! actually had a really, yay, and we had a really great hot take this week. In case you missed that, you should go check that out. As part of the festivities, there was the release of a new single called Undefeated. It's by Rihanna J, and according to the website The Undefeated, it is, quote, an anthem celebrating the resilience of Black female athletes who face opponents on the courts the playing fields, and the track as they battle stereotypes and the weight of racial history. Also, it's a bopper. Shereen, I know <laughs> that you are excited about this. What did you think of the song? I love music. And I think this was great. I think that I really, really appreciated that the song was specifically for Black women athletes. Like I think that is so important because actually in this piece by Babel, 
undefeated partnered with Disney for this song. And there's this part in this that just really, really got to me. And it's they're citing a study that's part of this initiative. And it says, quote, while white women were portrayed and treated as delicate and as civilizing influence during slavery times, black women were viewed as and treated as defiant, savage, and hypersexual. The study writes, the perception did not abate after slavery ended, and as a result, the stereotype of the loud, immoral, and aggressive black woman extended into the area of sports. And I think that's so true because we see this often. We've seen it with Serena. We see it in you know the way that she's criticized and critiqued for just playing hard. And it's so, I love the way that this was folded into music for making it specific for those young girls that will hear it and say, this is for me. Like, I just, I thought it was great. What did y'all think? I liked it so much. And the video is beautiful. So you should definitely not only listen to it, but you should go watch the video because it, of course, it features an all black women from a track team, which I can't remember now. I should have written that down, which track team it is. But then, of course, like lots of images and videos of black female athletes across the years. And it's just a powerful visual alongside the audio. Lindsay, what do you think? Yeah, it was incredible. The entire All-Star festivities were absolutely incredible. I'm still buzzing from Allie Quigley's win in the three-point contest. If you, I know we're going to talk about that later, but if you haven't seen that, you need to see it. But overall, I think this was great. It was really good to see the undefeated recognize Black female athletes. I love a lot of the work the undefeated does. And look, I mean, no shade at all, but I just hope that this is a sign also that that site is going to start devoting more resources to the current Black female athletes that we have who are really just incredible and, you know, deserve more coverage. So I hope that ESPN and the undefeated, that this is kind of a sign moving forward, that they're starting to invest more than that. No shade, all positive, just kind of, you know, hoping for more in the future. Amira? Yeah, I think that it's really interesting. This is a song is a part of the Undefeated's ongoing series on Black women athletes. Uh, they commissioned some artists, some Black women artists to do pictures, what they understood the plight of Black women athletes to be. And some of those images are just really riveting. And so it's really encouraging to echo what Lindsay said. I really enjoyed All-Star Weekend, although the competition I was most happy about was not actually the three-point competition or actually anything with the ball, but the numerous dance-offs that happened <laughs> at center court. So good. They were amazing. <laughs> Most Asia Wilson was definitely, you know, at the forefront of this, but they even got Brittany up and moving and shaking her little butt at one point. And it was literally the video I kept on repeat giving me <laughs> such joy. So it was, it was a fantastic all-star weekend. Lindsay? We don't deserve Liz Cambage. Like she is just too yeah. good for this world. Did you? There was a video of her with a Bluetooth speaker like around her shoulder, and then she was like hitting the speaker with her bum while she was dancing. <laughs> it was just, yeah, like amazing. She was bouncing it off her butt. Yeah. And my other favorite thing was her and Janae Agumake posed together on the orange carpet, which is the WBA's version of the red carpet. And Janae tweeted it and hashtagged it team ejected because they both got ejected from games in the last week. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that so much. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like one of the real strengths of the WNBA All-Star Weekend was just seeing all of their personalities together in a really loose atmosphere. It was just a joy. Before we get going off of this topic, Shireen, did this remind you of any other songs that you love? 
Well, I love warm-up songs. I'm definitely adding this to my like pre-game, you know, the game face warm-up. And I think it's good. I mean, I have warmed down Waka Waka by Shakira is like my favorite for obvious yeah, reasons. But my warm-up is definitely, you don't know, Eminem 50 Cent is my like game face. I'm going to crush you on the f- pitch. And along with that is Bend It Like Beckham Lovers Will Recognize Tharshan by B21, which is part of that soundtrack, which is the track in the movie when Jess is running from the wedding to the final and ripping off her sari and putting on her kit because I can relate to that in so many ways. And it just it's thrilling and exciting. So if and it's amazing if you're ever at an Indian wedding or a South Asian wedding, they get darshan on the floor. It's one of those songs that everybody clears the tables and gets the dance floor. That's awesome. Well, thank you all. And now on to the show. Amira, do you want to get us started? I do. Um, so this past week, Greeny Portland, who was a basketball coach here at Penn State for many years, passed away of cancer. She was 65. And Greeny Portland's death has engendered much conversation about many things, women's basketball, and also, unfortunately, about homophobia and the persistence of homophobia, particularly in women's sports. That's because Greeny Portland who, yes, grew the game of basketball and was a tremendous women's basketball coach, was also a flaming homophobe. She very famously said that she the, the rules for her team was no no drugs, no alcohol, no girls. Part of her recruitment package was going into living rooms and, and assuring parents that at Penn State, their daughters could come play basketball and they would not become lesbians. And I think that it's really, for me, points to something about women's sports that historically, as the games have been growing, whether it's women's basketball or track or soccer, the biggest kind of idea was that sports are a masculine enterprise. Therefore, women who are playing sports are different, deviant. They are uh, sexual others. And so, so many programs and people in the game worked so hard to combat these stereotypes that the pendulum swung the other way. So track coaches that I study, for instance, were insistent on displaying the fact that their track runners had boyfriends, right? Or baseball players that I write about The photo shoots were purposely posed in dresses. At one time, one of the players I write about in the Negro Leagues was posed topless with her husband rubbing her down on her back as to emphasize their heterosexual inclinations. So there's a kind of duality here. And I think Rini Portland really sits at one place in that duality, where on one hand, she was a head coach from 1980 to 2007. She brought the Lady Lions here, their first number one ranking, their first Final Four appearance. She was named National Coach of the Year twice by the Women's Basketball Coaches uh, Association. She had a career record of 693 to 265 and did so by building this kind of titan of a program that had never existed before. But she did so at the expense of women on her team feeling comfortable. And all of this came out when a former player, Jen Harris, actually filed a lawsuit against this discrimination based on ostracization that came from Coach Portland on down to essentially punish her and humiliate her on the perception that she was a lesbian. And Jen Harris isn't actually gay, but it was the very perception that allowed her to still do this. And the result of that lawsuit, it was settled out of court. And at the end of that season, she resigned her position. 
And the last thing I want to say about this as we transition to a larger discussion, and certainly I think there's a larger discussion to be had here. We have this week, of course, Jaylene Hinkle, you know, and women's soccer also sitting at this connection where some a sport that has been ridiculously progressive, having Pride Nights and Pride Jersey, is now reckoning with somebody who's very publicly, you know, stated that she didn't want to play because she would have to wear a Pride Jersey. So you have dichotomy, this duality, still this tension still going back and forth. And I'd love to have a discussion about that. The last thing I want to say before we jump into that is one of the reasons that Rainy Portland had such a long tenure at Penn State and was so protected was because she was so protected by Paterno. He vouched for her. He was her biggest fan. And it was part and parcel of how he recruited. So Joe Pa would go out there to living rooms and say, come, give me your sons. I'll make them wholesome. This is a wholesome campus where they will learn how to be men and I will protect them like a father figure. And the flip side of that coin was that Rainy Portland was going into places and saying, we have a wholesome community. Come here to Happy Valley. Your girls will be safe. And don't worry about them playing basketball because I absolutely will not allow lesbians on my team. They won't get into any of that stuff. We are a wholesome environment. And it was that one-two punch of recruiting that built up athletics here in many ways. So it's not so much disentangled from what we understand about Joe Parr, legacies of masculinity, but it's wrapped up in it, these anxieties about sexual orientation within the women's game. And Rini Portland is, is a very pivotal figure in understanding that tension. Wow. Thank you, Amira. Lindsay. Gosh, that was such good information. <laughs> and I think it's like Amira is saying, it's so important to realize that this is not just a, you know, a Rini Portland thing. And this does not end with her leaving women's basketball. You know, we have, of course have Kim Mulkey at Baylor, who we know that it basically made Brittany Griner stay in the closet while she was at Baylor and, you know, wanted her players to look a certain way and act a certain way. And so as to not be too gay or whatever that means, you know, too stereotypically gay and to make all these, you know, religious fanatics more comfortable rooting with a basketball team. We also had Amanda Ottaway was on the show. I interviewed her about her basketball memoir, The Rebounders, a few months ago. And she played college basketball at Davidson. And she remembers very clearly her coach at Davidson at the time. This was about eight or nine years ago, you know, not wanting her players to be out wanting her players to present in a certain way, not recruiting, more preferencing, you know, preferring to recruit daintier women, even if they weren't the best women on the basketball court because of the, you know, in a, in a desire to preserve a certain image. So we just still see this happening and it's so important to continue to push against it. There's always this notion that women's sports are, because there's this notion that it's mostly lesbians that play women's sports that that's you know a narrative that's followed women's sports around since the beginning of time that you know women's sports don't have to deal with homophobia but we know that that's absolutely not the case and that's why it's so important to continue to celebrate these moments that we get such as Sue Bird and Megan Rapino on the cover of ESPN the body issue you know together being an openly gay power couple openly lesbian power couple that's why I love looking at the WNBA all-star styles and you see such a mix of styles and presentations and personalities on the red carpet everyone really feeling comfortable fully being 
being themselves, no matter how they choose to present themselves. And it, it does make me feel like, you know, we've, we've come a long way, you know, women's basketball, the WNBA tweeted out a picture of Deladon and her wife on the red carpet, because it was, you know, team Deladon. And they sent Candace Dupree, whose wife, Dewana Bonner, was in the All-Star Game. Candace Dupree tweeted a photo of her twins, her and Bonner's twins, at home wearing Dupree-Bonner jerseys watching. And so little <laughs> moments, which, uh, I mean, you all have to go look at those photos, obviously. Uh, cute Honestly, babies. pause this episode cute right babies. now, come back, but, but, you know, go look at that because <laughs> they're just so cute. And, it, you know, those moments are just so important to continue to celebrate because they weren't a given in this game even a decade ago. And if we don't continue to celebrate and push them, then these coaches at the lower ranks who are still spreading these messages of hate and fear are, you know, going to continue to penetrate society. Yeah, that's also interesting. I recently talked to Katie Barnes of ESPNW for a different project about LGBT athletes. And one thing that they pointed out to me is that there are very few out female basketball players on the collegiate level. And that's, you know, and sort of the discrepancy there between the WNBA as an indicator of what those players are up against on that level. Brenda? I really love the point about, well, there's this sort of stereotype of women's athletes as lesbian or somehow not sex- properly sexually developed in the past. And yet, at, and so they're facing all this homophobia. And yet at the same time, They do become places of underground community and solidarity among lesbians. And so it's an interesting, and I think that's why, and not only as athletes, but as fans as well, women's soccer fans and communities of women's soccer fans, especially in places like LA in the 1990s and the lesbian bars in Portland that are amazing sites of community and solidarity among lesbians. The thing is, then, I think that's why the issue of Hinkle is such a big deal. It's not that they haven't faced, you know, homophobia before, because they face it every day, as we're talking about. But there's something about, you know, having that disruption (laughs) within the team and then for fans to have to deal with that. And I think that Jill Ellis was asked yesterday in a press conference or earlier this week about Hinkle and the issue of calling her up or not calling her up because she was called up and then she was cut from from the final, you know, cut for the Tournament of Nations this week. And I think what drives me crazy about this is she said, well, it was just a soccer decision in the end. I don't know if you all saw that. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, but maybe we don't need... Ellis to be responsible for this. We need the U.S. Soccer Federation to have come out already and issued a statement, already levied a fine about kind of hateful statements that you make to the press about teammates that are homophobic and or racist, which is often the case as well. So I don't know. I don't want to go on too much about it, but I think there's like an interesting link there about why Hinkle's such a big deal within the women's soccer community. Yeah, and it was a really big deal. We'll link to multiple pieces that were written about her being called up and the all the emotions and feelings around that. Uh, Shireen? Yeah, just to get back to what you said about what Katie told you about the NCAA level athletes and how not many of them are out, and they make a really good point. Because when we think about the power dynamic of those athletes at collegiate level, they don't feel safe enough to actually come out. They might not. And it makes me think about how 
sad that is and how dangerous it is for the sports community when these athletes don't even feel like uh, that, you know, it's possible for them to be able to come out generally. And it's that actually made me sit back a little bit and think how sad this is, sad and how we can't let this perpetrate. Like these are athletes and we have so many thoughts about NCAA and the brown and black bodies that are being used. And then they can't even come out. And like, just on so many levels, it makes me mad that this is the reality. And I have a really close friend who played Div 1 basketball. And off record, she told me that so many of her of her teammates identified as queer, but not openly. And they were families, like Brenda said, about underground communities. The communities of the players themselves respect and loved each other on teams. Yeah, sure, there was problems because, I mean, people are human. But inherently, they all love each other and they work together. And I just find that really, really upsetting. Like, I find that really upsetting. Yeah, I think that you put into things that are really current and existed when Rainy Portland was a coach as well, which is how much the kind of coaching levels, how it seeps in and it goes all the way from the bottom to the top. One of the things about Rainy Portland was when the NBA was wanting to launch the WNBA, she was one of 10 coaches they consulted to shape the league. This is somebody who was the president of the Women's Basketball Coaching Association. Last year was inducted into the Hall of Fame um, for women's basketball coaches. So thinking about what that means, if you have somebody who's crafting the game in such fashion, how coming out right could be the end of your career in many ways. And I think that that's really important to talk about. If anybody wants to have more information about Rainy Portland or the lawsuit that Jen Harris brought or the whole thing, there's a great documentary called Training Rules. It was came out in 2009 and it follows this entire case. And I really recommend that everybody go and watch that again, training rules. And I think on that last point that you made, Shereen, I, I want to leave this off returning to Jen Harris, who brought the lawsuit. And Jen was asked, Jen, you're not a lesbian. Why do you why do you care? And she said, I don't need to be part of a group that discrimination to call out discrimination. It's the same thing with black people in the 60s in Jenna's mix. And she said, this is putting notice to homophobia in sports uh, across the board. You cannot treat people like that. And I think that that is really important to think about and, and to hold close as we, as we wrestle with these competing legacies of building the game, but also infusing it with hate. Shereen, will you please get us started on Ozeal? Thanks, Jess. After the World Cup, we all came to the same conclusion, rightly so, that Germany completely went out in flames. And we know this. And this happens. It happened with Brazil last time. It has happened many times with many great teams. One of the great players of the German national team is Mesut Ozil. Now, Mesut Ozil is... German with very, very strong Turkish background, meaning he identifies very strongly. He has two identities. He said this in a recent Twitter post. He's actually said he has two hearts. One is German and one is Turkish. And as someone who is Canadian Pakistani woman, I completely understand what that means. There shouldn't be an issue about identities. Now, the biggest thing was very recently, Mesut Ozil announced that he was going to be quitting the German national team. He made his debut in 2009 with the youth team and has gone on to win the World Cup. He's gone on to win championships. He now plays for Arsenal in the Premier League, but his post was harrowing. And what I want to say before we really dive into this discussion is this is not 
a discussion and I don't want to take it in to frame it as if we're supporting Erdogan, the president of Turkey. We're completely aware there's very problematic issues in in Turkish, within Turkish politics, the muffling and, and incarceration of journalists, lack of free speech. And we'll post a lot of notes, sorry, links in the show notes when we talk about this. But the crux of this issue that I want to get at is specifically the idea of racialized identities in coming, being born of immigrant experience and how, according to Ozil himself, and there's a couple of pieces that I wanted to highlight, what he said that we've we've heard again, we've heard from Lilian Turin, we've heard from uh, Romelu Lukaku of Belgium, we've heard many French players say this, and I'm just giving you context for this. Ozil wrote in his his Twitter post, which was three screen, uh, four screenshots, was I am German when we win, but I am an immigrant when we lose, and this is so common within the discussion of people with immigrant experience or first generation, that when they are deemed worthy, they're collectively loved by society. And we've talked about this on this show, actually, when we talked about race in France and and, and the win that the World Cup win. But this is something that really needs to be addressed because it's a constant use of these bodies, of these people that will never fully be wherever they have, if they're born there or if they've immigrated there, it doesn't matter. And it's almost like they're disposable. And that's the crux of what I want to get to in this discussion. Now, what there was a bunch of things that happened specifically with Ozil, just to give people a background. There was a couple of German politicians who really went at him. And what had happened, this whole thing started when he actually met President Erdogan in London at a charity event. And for those that don't know, Erdogan used to play football and has always considered himself a footballer and loves it. And they talked it. And the German media then took out the photo and, you know, everything from calling him a goat fucker. This, these are actual, which is a very common slur directed to Muslims. And it's, it's so upsetting because this is a man who literally was at a charitable event. Yes, he's standing with Erdogan and whatever side of the political thing you, you stand on, that's not acceptable. Now we can also talk about the way that the German politicians, German actual politicians twisted this to call him everything from a traitor. Uh, there's one specific a man named Reinhard Grindel, and he had said in the parliament that, quote, multiculturalism is in a reality, a myth and a lifelong lie. So it's this idea of if you're German, you have to be German and nothing else. You cannot have another identity. It's not acceptable and you won't be German. And this is Ozil pushing back and sort of like it doesn't work like this. So I think what I wanted to say was I just wanted to quote this last piece and then we'll really get into it. He wrote, the treatment I have received from the DFB, which is the German National Federation, and many others makes me no longer want to wear the German national team shirt. I feel unwanted and think that what I have achieved since my international debut in 2009 has been forgotten. People with racially discriminative backgrounds should not be allowed to work in the largest football federation in the world that has many players from dual heritage families. Attitudes like theirs simply do not reflect the players they supposedly represent, end of quote. And I recommend everyone go out and, and have a look at this and then we can we can jump into it and have a discussion about that. But it's just, it was a big shock because Masut Ozil was basically in my opinion, used as a, a target because Germany completely flailed. And if someone wants to be blamed, I think it should be Manuel Neuer, but that's just my personal opinion. Okay. Brenda. Well, now that Ozil's off of Germany, I have absolutely 
no reason to ever root for them ever now. So I'm free. Like all my hatred towards the German national team, I always sort of hedged, right? Because I love Ozil. So now I get to be like, woo, I can full out hate watch Germany. I just wanted to say that the criticism that's been launched about his decision to leave the national team is as disturbing as the reasons and just kind of prove his point exactly. He's right now, you know, done amazing things in Arsenal and other places. And the president of Bayern said that he's been, quote, shit for years. And then another, the president of Frankfurt, and this is really tied to this toxic masculinity. The president of Frankfurt said, basically, quote, race, his blanket charge of racism simply does not correspond to reality. End of quote. So the denial that any racism exists, which we know it does, it's so documented, it's so well-founded to deny that and then to turn around and say, and since this isn't real, he needs to be a man is what they keep saying. He's a coward. He's not a man. He's not a warrior. So being a man is to be manly is to accept violent racism at your place of work. So it's all like linked that somehow Turkish men aren't real men. There's an effeminization of Turkish men in Germany that somehow they're weakening the national state. So anyway, I just the criticism in the fallout after has been disgusting and has just proven Ozil's point like right and left. Wow. Oh my goodness. Okay. There was the social media positive response, which was this clever little hashtag called Me Too, but that's T-W-O, for people who, second generation immigrants who, in the way that Ozil talked about, have multiple identities to back him up, right? And to show that they too face this kind of racism and discrimination, that he is not alone. So the racism that he's facing and all of these other firsthand accounts of the racism that other people have faced that are in a similar position to him have just, like Brenda said, reinforced exactly his point to begin with. Amira? Yeah, I was going to echo that and also say, as as Shireen kind of alluded to, when you take Ozil's words and you put them against words of players on many national teams who have expressed similar sentiments, it paints a really stirring picture of what it means to be accepted, what citizenship claims mean, and what it means to be a racial or ethnic minority playing at the highest level for your country, whether it's in the Olympics or World Cup. And I think that this is something that we're going to see again. We've certainly seen it before. I think as the Women's World Cup rolls around and then, of course, the Olympics, we'll see this and we'll see this sentiment over and over and over again, which is that you can play, you can bring glory and you can get conditional acceptance. But the line is very thin. And I think that the other thing to parse out is kind of between the rhetoric and then that there's been historically times where this has been actually used to make citizenship claims. And there's a Panamanian sprinter, a woman in the 50s, who literally performed well enough that she was bestowed citizenship where before she didn't have it because of her birth in the canal zone. And I think about Trevor Noah had a piece about this when he kind of got into a tussle with the French ambassador over talking about France as an African victory, the World Cup win. And he talked about, you know, the the story of the immigrant in France who scaled the building to save the cat. It was a cat. Was it a baby? It was a cat. Baby. It was a baby. 
cat. He's scared of something to save something. It's a baby. <laughs> okay. Baby. The baby. And and Trevor joked, how did that work? Like going up, he was an immigrant, but once he got the baby and came back down, he was a citizen. And it was joke, but also he actually got citizenship. And so there's actually real citizenship claims that are wrapped up in these ideas about like proving yourself worthy of becoming a national of, of whatever country. And the sports field has been one venue of that. And I think it actually really throws into question um, what citizenship means in various countries. Certainly I'm more versed in the United States and there's a lot of conversation about birthright citizenship that's going on right now. Martha Jones, just her new book on this came out, but these contested claims of citizenship and how one can become a citizen is really compelling to me. Yeah. I mean, we're just seeing this all over the place, right? There was recently an incident in Russia where a teenager soccer player had his contract canceled by a Russian second division team, Torpedo Moscow, just six days after signing it because the fans of the club didn't want to have a black player on their team. He was a defender who was actually born in Russia. This is Irving Botaka Obama, but he is of Congolese descent. And so after he signed with Torpedo, there was just this torrent of hate coming down, including one group which said, black may be one of our club's colors, but we only want whites in our ranks. And so just six days after he was signed, the team rescinded the contract. And they, of course, said that it had nothing to do with racism, that it was a financial decision. But we all know that we can all read through the lines there. And so it's just disgusting. You know, this is all coming on the heels of the World Cup that, you know, went so well. But look, there's just so much work to be done in this area. And it's good to have players who are speaking out against it. Just to reemphasize, because this is important, by no means here at Burn It All Down are we not cognizant of the issues within Turkish politics revolving around sport and revolving around everything else. And I mean, just to point this out, Denis Naki is, was suspended by the Turkish Football Association after supporting personally Kurdish fighters, but with, was then accused by the state of propagating terrorism and criminal charges against him were formally dropped. And then there was an attack on his life. Now, Turkey is geopolitically in a very, very uh, tough position. It's got Turkish fighters resisting in Syria. And it's there's so many things happening. And we're very cognizant of this. But the issue with Ozil, because I've gotten a lot of messages, and I actually had a good friend who messaged me would like to stay anonymous for their own safety, um, and sent me a lot of links and, you know, has a very different take on the Mesut Ozil situation, specifically because of what's transpiring there. And Erdogan doesn't have a lot of fans that way in that and people that talk about press freedom, and, you know, personal political expression, freedom of expression are talking about this as well. But the issue that we're getting at here is on race and identity. And, you know, people can say, Masoud Ozil has also said and been criticized, in my opinion, rightly so, that it wasn't a political move. But when you stand with a leader, like it becomes this conundrum of you stand with someone who, yes, is the president of the, your home country, but is also very problematic. So what does that look like? And then all of this get rolls into it, which by no means excuses the racism hit against them. And just to wrap up, Mesut Ozil also quoted two of Miroslav Klose and uh, Lukas Podolski, who are actually Polish 
Germans, but they're not referred to as Polish Germans. They're just referred to as German. And I think this is a very important point because I did an interview and recently about the issue of uh, racial identity in France and football. And the issue is not about immigration. It's framed about immigration because all of Europe is so fucking xenophobic so much. But the issue is really about race. And what Lindsay just talked about, the player in Russia, it's absolutely about race. It's not an, because like, I mean, we let the issue of Polish immigrants go because they're white. It's not, it's, it's a non-starter. And Masut Ozil is very fair-skinned. He's white passing. I mean, can you imagine if, yes, if he was of Congolese descent, but the but thing is- But he's also is, Muslim. That, that's the he, other- Well, this is, he identifies very strongly. I mean, he's gone for Umrah and has taken pictures outside the Kaaba. You can't get more Muslim than that. So I think that there's so many things that we want to you know, address and realize that it's really complicated. But what is not complicated is Islamophobia, xenophobia, and racism in football. Up next, Brenda's interview with Caitlin Best about the NWSL. We're excited to have with us today Caitlin Best, freelance soccer writer from Portland who covers the Thorns and LGBTQ issues in sport. Welcome to Burn It All Down, Caitlin. Hey, thanks for having me. So right now we feel like it's a really exciting time to talk about women's soccer. There's so much that's been going on and it just feels like a natural progression from the Men's World Cup to start amping up our excitement for France 2019 and because the NWSL season seems like it's just gangbusters. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'd like to start out just by asking you, how do you think the season's going? This is a really wild season. This is, if you look back over the last five years, this is, I think, the closest the league has ever been, especially by this point in the season. You basically have, you know, North Carolina at the top, far and away the best team. They only have one loss on the season. And then after them, it slots like two through seven right now. Kind of, you could potentially still see all those teams as as uh, playoff contenders or as sneaking in if results fall a certain way. So it's a really exciting season. And I don't think anybody really knows what's, what's going to happen in these last, what are we at, six weeks left in the season. So it's been really exciting. And yeah, it's a great time to be an NWSL fan. Has there been any team that surprised you in particular? I would have to say Houston, because they, coming into the season, it was pretty much a consensus that their offseason had been a complete disaster. Nobody knew what they were doing. There was the whole debacle where they traded for Chris and Press, and then Chris and Press didn't end up going there. And they made all these trades that didn't make a lot of sense to anybody. But then coming into the season, I think that Vera Pa, who is a, a Dutch coach who who has experience coaching only on the international level before this, she's done really well with this team. And you look at their roster and compare it to the other rosters of the other four or five teams that are maybe in contention for the playoffs, you wouldn't think on paper that that they would be as good as they have been. And they haven't been great. You know, they're in sixth place or kind of a middling win-loss record, but mm-hmm. I think they've surprised a lot of people in that they've been able to get quite a few results. They've been able to get results against some good teams. So that's, to me, been one of the, the more interesting stories of the season. And how's attendance been? Attendance has, I believe, been down since last year. That's, I guess, one of the worst stories of the season. You know, I'm in Portland, so my perspective is a little skewed. <laughs> Lucky. I, 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 I would have to check. <laughs> I would have to look that up. But in Portland, I think it's been down a little bit over last year, but not significantly. But then I think like in Orlando, they have not been been doing very well at all. But then you also do have Utah coming in, who's been averaging, I think, like 8,000 a game, which is pretty good, especially for an expansion team. So if they could keep that up in years to come, that, that'll be good. Yeah. And so as you're getting toward the end of the season, 
some developments have happened that you've been writing about for the Equalizer. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that article you wrote about the Players Association. Yeah. And what's going on with that? Well, so I, I don't know that there's been developments on that front, but this is just something that I've sort of been thinking about throughout the season. So basically the, the NWSL Players Association sort of officially formed in, I think, May of 2017 or beginning of last season sometime. And they pretty much announced their formation and there was a little bit of publicity at that time. And then they kind of flew under the radar for a while. So I was just sort of wondering, like, what's going on with that? And so I checked in with Yala Averbutch and a couple of the other players on the uh, executive board there. And basically my question was, why is it still the case that this is not an actual union yet? So basically now it's just this group of players. The league sort of recognizes them and, and deals with them and has talks with them, but they don't actually have any like legal authority. They can't, they can't bargain collectively on the behalf of their players, which is kind of the legal definition of a union. And basically the story is that this is intentional. They're going at this slow pace deliberately because these players all understand that the NWSL is a, a league that needs to continue to survive. And they all understand that you had WUSA, you had WPS before the NWSL, both of those leagues failed because it was too expensive and, and, you know, these teams weren't profitable, essentially. So with the Players Association, they're not marching into the league office and demanding, you know, higher salaries, anything like that. This is basically a group that exists so that they can talk to the league, which as individuals is something that's very hard for them to do. So it, it's an interesting thing. It's it's not, I think, how a lot of people think of labor unions or think of, you know, how employees sort of want to relate to their employer in terms of they really do think of this as a collaboration with the league. And what do you think, I mean, ultimately, what kinds of things do they want to bring to the table? What concerns do they want to bring? Well, so ultimately, I mean, I, I think they want what what everybody wants for women's soccer, which is for them to make good salaries and have, you know, good facilities and be treated like professionals all across the board. You know, it's funny, every time I ask somebody about specific issues, there was sort of some, I don't know, reticence, but but really what, what I was told a number of times by a number of different players was just, we want to be able to talk to the league and know what's happening. And if something's going on, you know, we're the first ones that you talk to about that. So you look at a situation like, you know, when Boston folded in the offseason or when Kansas City relocated, those are the types of situations where they really just want to be informed about what's happening. And that's really been their main concern that everybody told me about when I was reporting on this story. And like, given what's, what has been going on at clubs like Sky Blue mm-hmm. right now, do you think that an association would help a situation like that? So basically a few weeks ago, Chicago played a game at Yurkak against Sky Blue. And Sam Kerr, who is the you know Australian star who played I think, the last few seasons at Sky Blue and just moved to, to Chicago this season, she scored a hat trick. And, and you watch this game and it's, I don't know, it's one of the, the more surreal things I've ever seen in a soccer game because she scores these goals. And as she's doing it, she just sort of jogs away from the goal, like kind of hanging her head. And so even as the game is happening, you're kind of like, what? what's happening here? This is not like a normal reaction to scoring a goal. And yeah, then there after was the, no celebration. Yeah, it was strange. <laughs> and then after the game, she talked to Dan Laletta with Equalizer and, and basically said, you know, I hated coming here and doing this. I hated playing against this team, against these my former teammates who I still really care about. And the conditions at Sky Blue are just so bad that I didn't even want to be here playing this game. And so after that, people sort of started looking into it and... There was a, another article that came out on Equalizer 
just sort of giving the inside scoop on what the conditions are like at Sky Blue, which is bad. The housing situation has been really unstable. You have players like sleeping in bunk beds and like showing up in New Jersey, not sure where they're supposed to be living and being told they have to move suddenly. And then I think like one of the more shocking things to a lot of people is there's no showers at the field where they play. And there's, it's like, it's basically not a professional team. I mean, these are standards that that you just would not expect to see in a professional league. So as all these sort of revelations are coming out, the Players Association, I guess, did get in touch with the league and they wouldn't tell me much about exactly what's been happening there. But I think that basically the Players Association, you know, took the concerns of the Sky Blue players and just took them directly to the the league office, which is something that on their own, those players, you know, don't really have a way of doing. So that's one example of a, a situation where, you know, despite not having the legal backing of a union, it's been useful to have this like official group that the league recognizes essentially. Right. And I've been reading a lot about salary numbers and how it's sort of difficult to understand them because the cap is what, 41000 right now per year? Yeah, that's, the, that's the individual maximum salary. That's the individual. But then when you go through what the budgets actually are yeah. for a player to make 41000 means other players are making fifteen, sixteen. Yeah. I don't have the total salary cap in front of me, but it's you're right. That it's 270 or something. It's a, it's about 270, yeah, something, like, something that. like that. So it basically works out so that if you add up all, the roster rules are complicated, but basically it works up so that if you add up all the players who are actually on, counted as being under the, the each club salary rather than the allocated players who are paid by the, the federations, there really can only be a couple of players making more than the league minimum because, you know, their chunk that they take you know, bumps everybody else down to the minimum or close to the minimum. So the salary rules in the NWSL are, I don't know, it's sort of Byzantine and essentially most people in the league are are making somewhere near the minimum is, is sort of the understanding and the minimum, that we have. Do you remember the minimum? The minimum is, I actually do have that in front of me. It's 15,750. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be really hard to live in Portland. Yeah, well, so I, I will say that Teams provide housing, so, and you know, depending on the team, they there's a number of provide housing. They provide players with cars. You know, they get a certain number of meals on training days or game days. So it's not like you're really out here like trying to scratch out a, a living completely on on fifteen thousand dollars. But mm-hmm. you're right, it's it's not very much money, and it's not a good living, and it certainly is not you know fair for for what they're doing as athletes. Yeah, because they're amazing. Yeah. So real quick, I just don't want to let you go before talking about one of the most pressing issues that has come up in the LGBTQ community around the U.S. national women's team. Hinkle? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've covered this a lot on Burn It All Down, so I think our listeners are pretty good with the background on it. But I'd like to get your kind of thoughts about what's been going on the last week. You know, she got called up. Yeah. Now it looks like called off. Right. So we're in an interesting, it's been a strange couple of weeks. The first thing that happened, I think like two weeks ago was we found out that she was getting called back into the national team for the, or or into the camp, I should say, for the the Tournament of Nations. And of course, there was a outcry over that. And I was, you know, one of the people making that outcry because of the homophobic actions and, and comments that she's made in the past. And then just a week after that, we found out that she had been cut from the final 23 player roster along with Kalia Ohai. And 
it's just a really strange turn of events because, you know, when she got called in, I was very uncomfortable with the notion of her playing for the national team. And, and as I wrote at the time, I have to look ahead at 2019 at the World Cup. And if Jalen Hingle is on that team, like, can I support that? Do I want the, the U.S. to win another World Cup if she is on the field? But on the other hand, there is definitely a pure soccer argument made. The consensus is that she is the best left back in the league. And, you know, there's a, the further sort of complicating thing of the United States is sort of infamously thin on defenders in general, but especially on wide defenders to the point where, you know, in the, in the Tournament of Nations right now, we have Crystal Dunn playing at left back. So there was a soccer argument to be made for including her in the team, which whether you agree with that or not, it's there, I think. So then mm-hmm. for her to be called into camp for two or three days and then cut was really, I don't know, it's a strange turn of events. And, and I, I think that the speculation out there and to me, the only thing that makes sense is that they basically called her in to sort of quell speculation or rumors or whatever that that she was being kept out of the national team because of that situation with the the Pride Month jerseys. So it's a strange situation, and it's something that I'm I'm continuing to look into. Yeah, we've we've covered it a lot. It's it's super complicated. I mean, it's not complicated that she's a bigot. Right. You know, that's not complicated. That's really basic. Right. <laughs> but what U.S. soccer can do, what recourse they can do, I think they could have done a whole lot more. Yeah. I think there's a lot more to be done other than keeping her or cutting her from a team. Right. There's also their statements that they could have made. There's training that they could do. And so I guess I was supremely disappointed at the focus being like on Jill Ellis and cutting or not cutting, right? Whereas like, I thought, hey... Even before that, why is U.S. soccer not issuing stuff? Why isn't NWSL issuing stuff? Why are they letting 700 Club on North Carolina ground? I mean, that is a separate issue, and it's one that I think a lot of NWSL fans, and specifically North Carolina fans, are are pretty upset with the club for allowing them to film at their stadium. Um, Yeah, so I felt like, you know, there was so much, like, all of the attention on Yahoo Sports or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) was about that question, when it's like, you know... I think in the women's soccer community, there was a whole lot more complicated criticisms too, yeah. you know, that people like you made at the time. So it'll be really interesting. Is there anything you're looking forward to seeing at the Tournament of Nations so far? I saw Alex Morgan's hat trick yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I, I enjoyed that game. I'm looking forward to, I always like to see Australia play. Sam, Sam Kerr scored a great goal against Brazil the other day. So it's always exciting to see them play. It'll be good. USA Australia should be a great game. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the games for sure. Can you tell our listeners your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at bestkabest, B-E-S-T-K-A-B-E-S-T. And we'll also tag you with this interview so you can follow Caitlin that way and also at Equalizer. Thank you for being with us today, Caitlin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. I'm going to go first this time. This week, Stanford football star Bryce Love did not attend the Pac-12 Media Day in person, but instead Skyped in. And CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd was upset about it, to the point where he wrote an entire column on it. Quote, Still, there was a hole in the college football universe when the Pac-12's best player, and perhaps nation's best as well, was a no-show at Media Day. Here's the thing, though. Love didn't attend Media Day because he was going to class. Because he's a student. 
because he had school to attend. Dodd tells us that Love is majoring in human biology with an interest in pediatrics and stem cell research and is trying to graduate by December, which means he has more classes during the summer. The column is dumb in general because it's a lot about how Dodd doesn't seem to like technology, like he's very anti-Skype. But it's specifically terrible because he actually writes, I'm going to quote this, quote, but his absence does does set a dangerous precedent. This is going to give every star player an excuse to Skype in. <laughs> okay. Wow. So this is one media day. The season hasn't started yet. All of these media people are going to get plenty of access to this player in August and throughout the season. It just really shows that this is all about the spectacle of the sport over and above the actual lives and education of these players. And the NCAA doesn't even need to do that messaging themselves when there are sports media members like Dodd to carry that ridiculous water for them. So good on love for going to class and his dedication to both his education and his football career. And shame on Dodd for this column trying to shame him for it. So just burn that whole thing. Burn it. Burn. Burn. Shireen, what are you burning this week? Okay, so bear with me. I'm kind of doing a, a stretch to, because it's not necessarily sports, but it is sports. Okay, so we love Mo Salah. Mohamed Salah of Liverpool. We love him and the Egyptian national team. He had a photo with Trevor Noah. And everyone's like, yay. And I tweeted this photo out because I was so excited. In fact, I asked my good friend, Sonia Corey Masio to Photoshop me in because she Photoshopped me into a Law & Order photo. That was amazing. But what I didn't know, and one of our flamethrowers, who's really amazing, Hillary Haldane, who's a big supporter, she actually let me know that Trevor Noah made some really super racist comments against Indigenous women in New Zealand. And I did not know this because I'm out there unabashedly quoting Trevor Noah on everything from identity and football and, and, and everything else. And I didn't know. And this is a burn because apparently he did the stand-up act and commented about the physicality of Indigenous women and how they are not good looking. And I did not know this. And, you know, I was like, okay, can I just categorize him as a problematic fave? No, because his apology and recognition of that was very much, I'm just not going to use that material again. It's from 2013. He didn't come out and say, I'm stupid. I shouldn't have said that. It's untrue. And so he really got dragged by women from New Zealand and the Kiwi community that was just like, this is totally unacceptable, especially being from a marginalized, I mean, God, Trevor Noah grew up in apartheid. Like, come on. Like, if anyone should be aware of that. And also the use of, like, this absolute horrible misogyny and commenting on, like, the physical appearance of women is just totally unacceptable. So the reason that I'm tying it into Mo Salah, because it's not the first time Mo Salah has been photographed with someone problematic. When he was in Grozny for the World Cup, he was seen photographed much against sometimes his own will. He had to, by a commitment with a former Chechen-like warlord. So I'm going to burn most Salah being in photos with people that are super problematic, but I'm also going to burn, metaphorically, Trevor Noah and this horrible, horrible, horrible commentary that he had because I love the Black Fern so much. Burn. Burn. All right, Lindsay. Yeah. Let's take a little trip to Portland. Let's, uh, the Portland Trailblazers, every single one of their NBA home games They have a big segment called the Leopold Hometown Heroes. This is a segment that really, really 
like celebrates military people, people in the army, the navy, the marines, also, you know, first responders or just people in the community who have done something incredibly heroic. These people get free tickets to the game, they get some gift baskets from the Trailblazers and from Leopold and they also get recognition in game where Leopold and Stevens and Leopold Hometown Heroes are just splashed all across the arena in Portland. So yeah, it's a big deal there. Well, Leopold and Stevens happens to be a sniper scope manufacturer who the Democratic Socialists of America in the Portland chapter found out that they actually have a contract with the Israeli Defense Army and provided 800 sniper scopes to the uh, Israeli Defense Army. And you can see in photos, in Getty photos, images of Leopold snipers being pointed at the Palestinians. So this is just absolutely absurd. And we need to burn these types of partnerships. The DSA is doing some good activism trying to get people to stop uh, trying to get this contract to end or for Leopold to end their contract with the Israeli Defense Army. But look, there's just It's just pretty unacceptable. And so I would just like to burn that entire partnership, burn Leopold and Stevens and burn, you know, saying these wars. Burn. All right. Amira, what made you mad this week? (laughs) Yeah. So back to media day at the last day of Big Ten football media days. Michigan State Spartan coach Mark D'Antonio confirmed that John Reschke is going to be back on Michigan State's football roster. If you remember, 17 months ago, Reschke came to a quote-unquote mutual decision to leave the team after text surfaces. Now, if you read this, people will say racially insensitive text, but I'm just going to call it racism because they are racist texts, in which he was talking about a member of his football team, and it said, Quote, honestly don't know who for sure, but probably redacted teammates or another shitty fucking nigger with no morals. And after this was screenshotted, they came to a mutual decision for him leaving the team. Now, 17 months later, he is back on the squad. In order to kind of bolster defense decision, they had two of the captains of the football team who are both black kind of be front and center on media day to basically speak for the players and say, we've accepted his apology and we're welcoming him back with unity. Um, he has grown. But what I particularly want to burn is the narrative that this is setting up. And I think we saw this last week with Hayter in, in the like standing ovation he got for returning to the mound after his own problematic tweets resurfaced. D'Antonio at the media day said the following, quote, he paid the ultimate price by being out of football for a year. We'll see how he comes out of it. This will be a story to watch as we move forward. And that rhetoric is what I particularly want to burn. The idea that if you say racist things and then face consequences the fact that you can build a like victim return underdog story from coming back from the consequences of your racist or sexist actions 
is infuriating to me. And the whole way that this is framed is like, look, the black players on this team voted him back, so nobody else can talk anything about his his text messages or or his questionable character. Oh, look, you know, everybody's talking about peace and forgiveness and unity, and he's paid the ultimate price by not playing football for a year. And so now this is a story to watch. Now we can watch his numbers grow and we can applaud him for coming back from such, you know, circumstances. And it takes on the air of somebody returning from, you know, a tragedy or or, or a massive injury or, you know, unfairly being locked up or something that's actually terrible and not something of their own damn doing. So whatever, I'm over it. Media like the season has barely started and the media days are already like I'm just like over it all. So I'm I'm burning it down. Burn. Burn. All right, Brenda, what are you burning this week? I'm burning Barca. <laughs> Which is not a common common burn for me, given that it is the home of Messi. But it's also the home of Barcelona Femenino, which is a great women's soccer team in La Liga. And Barca, as part of its larger project to have a U.S. soccer presence, and we've talked about this on Burn It All Down for about the past year, it's unclear if they want a kind of sister-slash-brother club, if they want a franchise. It's not clear, but they've made their intent known that they want to have a presence in in U.S. soccer, and they're doing a tour of the U.S. on the West Coast. And it turns out that at the last minute, they decided to add the women's team. But the men's team flew first class and the women's team flew coach. This got onto social media and there was some justified anger about the, the, the gender gap in terms of resources and things like that. And so, you know, there were there were people that that posted things like, look at this. This is indicative of larger problems of gender inequity in sport. That seems pretty reasonable, right? No, (laughs) no, no. That is a bridge too far for Barca because the fact that they would even bother to bring their women's team was a milestone, in soccer history that they deserved credit for. So the club issued a statement basically saying, whoops, we forgot to tell the players not to share photos of themselves on airplanes on social media. (laughs) What is wrong? What? (laughs) Yeah, that's the issue. Like, shit. Like, we totally forgot to tell those women to genuflect in front of first class from coach and thank us the entire time and not post it on social media, please. And then other part of my burn, last part of my burn, which is totally related, is the coach of Barca women's soccer team, and I admire her very much as a soccer coach, Maria Teixidor, came, jumped to the defense of the club. Jump to the defense, saying someday women's football will be filling stadiums and making the same money and getting the same resources of men. But in the meantime, we need to recognize this great thing that Barca's done. Less cynicism is what she said. As if that just happens by chance, as if people, you know, a patriarchal, misogynist sports culture just decides to invest in women's soccer or men's soccer just happenstance. I mean, these sports have been invested in it, and there's a history there. And why would she issue that? Like, what a lack of leadership. Who made her do that? So I'm furious 
about this letter because how does Maria think that they even got a women's team in La Liga? I mean, does she really think it's just like men woke up one day and figured out that they shouldn't hate women? So I just, I, I want to like, no, it's like work and effort and protest and talent and all those things of all those women that she is responsible for coaching. So I want to just burn the letter, burn Barca's ridiculousness. And while I hope they have a wonderful tour, I want to burn the way it's been done. <laughs> burn. burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First, our honorable mentions. Fernanda Pinilla, a Chilean national soccer team player who openly declared herself a lesbian, saying, quote, It's hard to be a woman in Chile. It's even harder to be a gay woman in Chile. Estudiantes de la Plata, an Argentine women's soccer team who won the Silver Cup, but since the Argentinian Federation didn't have a trophy available, they celebrated by lifting a brick instead. Kim Eun-hee, a Korean tennis player who has, sent, who has disclosed being raped by a former coach when she was 10 years old. She is speaking out to raise awareness. Jenny Busick, a former Sacramento Kings assistant coach who is the first woman to be hired as an assistant coach by the Dallas Mavericks. Her official title is Assistant to the Basketball Staff Special Projects, which is a non-traveling coaching position, which was a specific demand of Busick's as she is about to give birth to her first child and did not want to have to travel for the first six months. Dallas hired her knowing this and created this position for her. The 50 women of WWE Evolution who will participate in the first all-women pay-per-view WWE show on October 28th. Jawahir J.J. Robel, the first black hijab-wearing referee in Europe who just officiated her first international tournament in Denmark at the Dana Cup. Ekaterina Karsten of Belarus, who participated in the World Rowing Cup 2 in Austria last month, a five-time Olympic medalist including two golds, Karsten is 46 and still competing, regularly placing in the top 10 in global competition. In Austria, she came in second with her Coxless 4 crew. Simone Biles, who won her first competition in two years at the U.S. Classic in Columbus, Ohio this weekend. The Chicago Sky's Allie Quigley, who, with a score of 29 out of 39 possible points in the final round of the three-point shootout at the WNBA All-Star Game, repeated as champion from behind the arc. Okay, after all those honorable mentions, a drum roll, please. Okay. Thank you. It's the highlight of my week. Our badass women of the week are the women of the Rugby World Cup Sevens. Woo! 16, yes, 16 teams competed and the New Zealand Black Ferns were champions. Sarah Goss of the Black Ferns won the Mark of Excellence Award. Her teammate, Michaela Blyde, won both top scorer and AIG player of the final. And Anne-Cécile Siofani of France won breakout player of the tournament. This was a big moment for women in Rugby Sevens. For the first time, the women's and men's tournament was held together. Every match was televised, and for the first time, all the commentators and referees were all women. There were also some female referees for the men's matches. Congratulations to all the women who participated in the Rugby World Cup Sevens. You are all badasses. Okay, what's good, y'all? Amira, what's been good for you? Yep, minor wins. As you know, I've been going through a difficult move, but I am currently recording this in my guest room slash new office, and it is set up, and 
half my books are unpacked and the Wi-Fi is on in my house and my printer is hooked up and I know where the outlets are. So I'm just calling that a complete win and I am happy. <laughs> outlets are great. Good. That is, that is my something. Good. Oh, and Samari has been at sleepaway camp for a week. She is another week, but I will get to see my baby girl again on Saturday. Oh, good. Lindsay, what's good with you? This week, there are a couple things. First of all, the City Open is in town, Washington, D.C., tennis. So I will get to go see some tennis, maybe Yay. then as soon as I finish ret- recording this podcast. But I'm not going to be here for the finals, and that's okay, or the quarterfinals or the semis, really, because on Thursday morning, I'm leaving to go to my aunt's cabin in the middle of the woods on a lake in the mountains in North Carolina, where I don't even think I'll have cell phone service, and I'm going to hang out with my aunt and uncle and a couple of my favorite cousins for four days and be just kind of completely disconnected and eat delicious food and lay out by the water. So I'm really excited for that too. That sounds great. I'm I am yeah. genuinely <laughs> jealous of that. Okay. Brenda, what's good for you? Well, I think that you suggested this on a what's good for you, Jessica, some weeks ago, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. And so that stuck in my head somehow and I watched it last night. And it's going to take me a few weeks to process it. And I think I need a few weeks to rewatch it to have for sure thoughts and feelings. (laughs) But one thing in particular, I just really liked sometimes when people say something, they do it so succinctly and so well. And when she said that straight white men's misogyny was a mental illness and she talked about that and what that would mean to consider it as such. It was just one of those ideas that, I don't know, got me thinking. And I love when stuff like that happens. So I'm super uh, grateful that I watched it. Like I said, I still have a lot to think about it. But that's what's good for me is the new, new perspectives, watching creative people like that, that can show me a different way to think about the same stuff. Yes, you're right. It felt like your brain was expanding yeah. while you're watching it. Shereen, what's good for you? I got lots of good stuff. I'm very excited. Today we're recording on Sunday morning. I have actually been awarded something called the Nine Mullet Community Award by an organization called Salam Cup, which is a ball hockey league for men in Toronto. It's a Muslim league. Anyone can join, but it's it's super cool. And I'm really, really honored by this. So of course, I'm going to go in this Leafs Nation wearing my Montreal Canadiens jersey and accept this, accept this award. Later this week, I get to go to Minneapolis. I guest edited a journal by Mizna, which is a literary journal of Arab writers. And this particular issue was called Playing the Field because it's a sports edition. And I was so humbled and honored. The team of the journal are all women and they're incredible. So I'll be in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The event is on Thursday night at Subtext Books, 7 p.m. And I will be wearing the Minnesota United jersey that my friend Jessica Lopez gifted me, the Pride special one. So I'm very, very excited about that. Wow. Congratulations on all of that. That's very exciting. Thank you. My what's good, <laughs> after Shereen said all that really great stuff, okay, my what's good is that last night we watched Paddington 2, and I just want to say, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> the Paddington movies oh. are beautiful, and they will make your heart happy, and they're so well done, and they're sweet and funny, and I'm just here to rep Paddington and Paddington 2, <laughs> and I really can't say enough about these cute bear movies, and you guys should watch those if you need an uplift, okay. 
okay. That's what's good for me. Can I just add one thing really, really quickly? I don't speak on behalf of my co-hosts because y'all are brilliant and articulate, but I would like to add that what's good as usual is burn it all down. This community, I love y'all very much. And it's always uh, what's good for me, but I just wanted to reiterate and underline and bold it this week because I love you guys a lot. And now that my guest room's done, you guys can come visit. (laughs) That would be amazing. Let's all pile in. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For more information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We could not do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burnitalldown. So that's it. For Shereen Ahmed, Amira Rose Davis, Brenda Elsie, and Lindsay Gibbs, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. Come on.